Well, the trio of Zags, still with their name in the 2022 NBA draft pool, have less than 24 hours from now to decide if they are staying in the pros or coming back to Gonzaga. So while we wait for that news, that will change the outcome of the season. We take a look at how this could shake out, what it means for Gonzaga's future, while also discussing the surprising but ultimately beneficial placement of the Gonzaga baseball team in the regionals way out in Virginia, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag athletics. I'm very happy to be back. It feels like such a long time when I miss one day. We missed Monday for Memorial Day as I was out of town on vacation. I had also pre-recorded Friday's episode with Sam Dower, so it feels like a long time since I've been behind the mic and on the camera. Happy to be back chatting with everybody here. Today is a delayed Mailbag Monday. We're, of course, releasing this on Tuesday because of the holiday. We're one day away from finding out what is going on with Drew Timmy, Julian Strother, and Rasir Bolton. All three of these players have until June 1st at midnight Eastern time to make a decision on whether they are going to keep their name in the NBA draft, foregoing the remaining college eligibility, or if they're going to return to college. None of these players are in the transfer portal, so they are. those are their options. They are not coming back to college and going somewhere else. The Drew Timmy to Kentucky dream that a lot of Wildcats fans had for a few weeks uh, earlier in the offseason is dead. That is not happening. They are either playing professional basketball or playing at Gonzaga. We will find out more about that in the coming days, which is going to shape a lot of Gonzaga season. But for today, we have nine Mailbag Monday questions perfectly segmented out into three different segments. We'll start here in segment one with a question from John via Gmail. John says, who will make up Gonzaga's last four scholarship slots? The potential players are the obvious three, Timmy Strother, Bolton, and then there have been a few other players we have been connected to in Malachi Smith, Tyrese Hunter, and Baba Miller. Also, if we have more players that we want, maybe a fifth scholarship, and it makes sense, would we ever take a scholarship away from one of the nine players currently on scholarship? So no, I would bet multiple, multiple locked-on paychecks that Gonzaga would not ever remove a player from scholarship simply to replace them with somebody else. Now, They could find other reasons to replace a player on scholarship. They could nudge and kind of push a guy to potentially transfer out. It's kind of a shady practice, but they would be far from the only team that has done that. I'm quite certain they have done that in the past. It's just part of the business. I don't think they're going to do that with this team. Obviously, the player that would make the most sense in this situation is Lithuanian guard Martinez Arlauskas, but Martinez loves being here. He loves being at Gonzaga. He seems just like a happy dude on the basketball team. He's a a good energy. I would be very surprised if Gonzaga attempted to run him out. I think that that would set an extremely dangerous precedent, uh, not just to other recruits, but specifically 
in revolving around Arlauskas, I think it would really damage their ability to uh, to recruit overseas, which is something that already took a hit when Tommy Lloyd went to Arizona. So, no, I do not think that they are going to do that. I think if they do end up in a situation where there are multiple players available that they want and they're not sure if they have the scholarship room, they're going to see what they can do. And again, maybe that does involve some kind of nudging and pushing in that regard. But uh, ultimately, I, I would be pretty surprised if they tried to just remove a player from scholarship. Uh, in terms of the names we're talking about here, yes, obviously all three of Strother, Timmy, and Bolton could return. I've talked a handful of times on this podcast about where I'm kind of at with those guys. Uh, it's, it's really up in the air. It's really up in the air. And nobody knows for sure what's going to go on with those guys. I, I've kind of leaned towards... Most of them potentially returning. I'm less confident about Drew Timmy. I've always been sort of on the fence about what Bolton is going to do. Uh, it certainly would make some sense for him to come back as a guy who is not going to be uh, drafted into the NBA, but is also not a guy who is going to come back and boost his stock to the point where he would be an NBA player. I think that some of that is generally true with Drew Timmy as well, although he is a much more high-profile player than Rasir Bolton, uh, and coming back to Gonzaga would obviously net him a lot of money through NIL. I think he would also make more money playing overseas or in the G League. I think there's this sentiment that, oh, he'd make just as much money coming back. I don't think that that's true. I, I think that he would make more money playing professionally, but he has also stated multiple times that the money is not the biggest concern for him. So we'll kind of have to see where he what he ends up feeling after this. And then, of course, Strother had himself a really nice uh, performance in the games during the NBA Combine. But he his measurements and some of his testing skills were not great, so he's kind of, I don't think he's boosted his stock as much as some people think that he has, uh, but I certainly think that he would be drafted were he to stay in the draft, which for some guys might be enough to just convince them to stay. I get it. If I felt very confident that I would get selected in the NBA draft, it would be really hard to convince me to come back to school where I could potentially jeopardize that. So I don't feel incredibly confident about any of these three guys one way or another. I would be pretty surprised if all three came back. I would also be very surprised if none of the three of them came back, which I realize is kind of a BS answer to this question. But frankly, we're going to know the answer to this question, at least revolving around those three guys. We're going to know the answer to that question in less than 24 hours, or maybe a little bit more than 24 hours, depending how long these guys take uh, for the deadline. In terms of the other names here, Tyrese Hunter, this question was asked before he committed to Texas, so he is out the door for the Zags. The The hope that either Tyrese Hunter or Kevin McCullough would come to Gonzaga is dead as McCullough went to Kansas and now Hunter went to Texas. Uh, the other names, Malachi Smith is a transfer out of Chattanooga. There's a lot of momentum that he is going to be a player who comes to Gonzaga. I'm, he's a six foot four guard, so I think it's kind of... Maybe depends on what's going to happen with Rasir Bolton. Uh, if Bolton and Malachi Smith come back to Gonzaga, they're going to have a bit of a guard log jam. But if Strother were to leave, they would just play a lot more three guard lineups next year. So there's definitely some room for that to work. Uh, Smith averaged 20 points and six and a half rebounds last year at Chattanooga. He shot 41% from three. He shot 38% from three the year before that. So he is a straight up gunner. From beyond the arc would be a really nice addition to this roster as a player that uh, can really light it up on the scoreboard and, and, and has a skill set that Gonzaga desperately needs on the roster. And then finally, Baba Miller. It was reported this morning on Tuesday morning as I'm recording this that Miller is visiting Spokane now. He was he posted a picture of himself at the airport waiting to fly to Spokane. So it's happening. It's coming very, very soon. He is a Spanish prospect, six foot ten, small forward, very, very athletic kid. 
There's not a lot of data out there about him because he's an international prospect. We know Gonzaga has done really well on the international market. Historically, this kid is really highly rated. He's a 2022 prospect, so were he to commit to Gonzaga, he would be right on the roster right away. He would take one of those scholarship spots. I don't know how big of an impact he would have in year one just because of that rawness. It's always a little bit harder to project some of those Euro guys right when they come over, Uh, but he's a really talented young man, and if Gonzaga were to secure a commitment from him, which it was reported last week that he had already committed to Gonzaga. That was a false report. Uh, Unfortunately, it was discovered as false before I talked about it on the podcast, but it's something to note that there's clearly some interest on both sides here, so hopefully this is something that could potentially get done. All right, next question. This one comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, I just assumed Chet would be selected first by the Orlando Magic and looking at different pundits, experts, and draft boards. There really is no consensus in this upcoming draft. Quite a few draft boards have Jabari Smith going first, the Magic Rocket, and Thunder are not really in a position to compete seriously for a title two or three years away. How do you see the first three picks playing out, and is Chet so polarizing because he's hard to comp? Yeah, the belief right now is that Jabari Smith is going first. That has been echoed by a huge number of people in the industry. Uh, It could be a red herring. It could be Orlando trying to to potentially change some things up. Uh, There's some rumors that they're maybe trying to trade down a spot or two, and maybe if they uh, can indicate who they're trying to pick or or try to hide who they're trying to pick, maybe they could swing a deal that way. This is kind of how this game always works. Uh, So when there is a lot of smoke, there's definitely something there, but it's not necessarily confirmation that it's going to be Jabari Smith. Uh, that Jabari Smith is not who I would take first. Uh, I, I think I have Jabari Smith fourth, and I think I could argue to have him fifth on this draft board, quite frankly. I think Smith is he's a good shooter, but his, his shooting numbers are dramatically over-exaggerated. Uh, I've seen some places the ringer had to uh, talk about how great of a step-back shooter he was, uh, and he the, the numbers just don't indicate that that's true. Uh, he's, a, he's a rough ball handler. He's not a very great defensive player. Uh, I convincingly have both Chet Holmgren and Paolo Bancaro ahead of Jabari Smith in my mind. I think you could reasonably take either of those two guys first for Orlando specifically. It should be one of those two guys in my mind. I don't think it should be Jabari Smith. I, I think Chet would be a great fit there. Obviously a great defensive center. Uh, familiarity with Jalen Suggs, their other rebuilding piece. Uh, just plays a position that they really need. They already have a good young defensive core, and adding him to that would be great. Uh, Palo Bancaro is a, more of a playmaker, more of a shot creator, uh, the best shot creator in this draft, in my mind, uh, probably the best offensive player in this draft overall. Uh, he's very rough on the defensive end, so there's some issues that are going to need to be kind of cleared out there. But for me, for my money, I'd probably go Chet, Palo, Jaden Ivey from Purdue, and then Jabari Smith, fourth right there with A.J. Griffin potentially in that conversation too. Uh, there's a couple other guys. Ben Matherin's a guy that I really like out of Arizona as well. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at with it right now. It does sound like Orlando is really eyeballing Jabari Smith, but again, there's still just about a month until the NBA draft, so a lot of things could change. Uh, in terms of Chet and comps, yeah, he is tough to comp. That has been kind of a challenge for him so far. Kristaps uh, Przingis has been a name that's been thrown out there. There's also been like some kind of offensive and defensive comps. Some people say, oh, he's like Anthony Davis on the defensive end and like so-and-so on the offensive end. I think a lot of those comps are really exaggerated and I don't super buy into him. He's Chet Holmgren. That's who he is. Uh, I don't think that he has a very specific comp because of his skill sets. I think Porzingis is fairly close as somebody who's a good outside shooter and a good shot blocker, uh, but I think that he's got more He's got more potential to to be more longer lasting in the NBA than Porzingis, who is still obviously in the league, but had only had a couple really good years and has kind of faded into more of a role player since then. 
Next question also comes from Christian, a similar topic. He says, maybe I'm trying too hard to get an all-zag NBA team. Could there be magic in Orlando for Andrew Nemhard? They have the 32nd and 35th picks. What about Memphis? Andrew could find himself on a playoff contending team playing meaningful backup point guard minutes. What are your thoughts on a possible landing spot for Andrew Nemhard? Uh, Orlando doesn't make sense to me at all. Orlando is not in a position to really be trying to compete for a playoff spot right away, as you said in the first question. I think Nembhard, if he does go in that late first, early second conversation, which is being discussed quite a bit as a potential landing spot for him, I think he goes to a playoff team. I think he's going to be selected by a team that is looking for immediate contributions from somebody who they're not going to draft him and ask him to play 25 minutes per night or even 15 minutes per night probably, but we want a guy who's going to be on our bench, who's going to be available to us when we need to rest somebody, who's going to be available to us if we have an injury, and who can legitimately play 8 to 10 minutes per night, or if we need to cram him in there for 2025, we know he can contribute right away. There's no reason for some of these very good teams that are trying to win championships right now, they're not going to use that late first round, early second round pick on a guy who's 19, who's unproven, even if that guy has higher potential than Nembhard. They're not going to use that pick. So for Orlando, that's who they should pick. They should go after the Peyton Watson from UCLA or the Patrick Baldwin from Milwaukee as he stayed in the draft. Uh, they should go after Leonard Miller, the Canadian prospect, if he stays in the draft. You know, the the, the younger, if those guys are available, obviously, I don't know exactly how the draft's going to shake out, but they're kind of right in that range on a lot of mock drafts, and, and that's where they should be taking. Teams like Memphis should absolutely be going after guys like Andrew Nembhard. Nembhard wouldn't be the backup point guard there. Tyus Jones is the backup point guard to John Morant. Nembhard would be more of a third-string point guard, but he would still you know, get some minutes here and there and be a contributor. I think that's a great spot for them. There's a lot of Memphis fans who agree and think it's a great spot for him as well, so I think that makes some sense there. I think Dallas at 26 could make some sense if he sneaks into the first round. I think San Antonio, though they're not a huge competitor yet, I think they could make some sense for him as well. There's lots of teams that make sense for Andrew Nembhard. Third-string point guards is a valuable role, and Nembhard is as good or better than most of the third-string point guards in the NBA currently, so I think he could be an appealing topic or an appealing prospect for a lot of teams. All right, we're going to come back in the second segment. We've got even more listener-submitted questions to answer all about Gonzaga's baseball team and their NCAA tournament draw. But first, I want to tell you all about Bet Online. The 2022 NCAA tournament is in the books with the win secured by Bill Self and the Jayhawks of Kansas. While the Zags unfortunately fell short of the game's pinnacle week, that does not mean fans cannot remain in on the action. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all of your betting needs and sports information. From all the latest odds, contests, and player props, you name it. BetOnline remains the best spot for all of your latest sports developments, including podcasts and reviews for all the leagues this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering information needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino games. Heck, they even have lines on a fight between Will Smith and Chris Rock, should you be so inclined. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and action. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, segment two, still Andy Patton, still Locked On Zags. Still want to thank you all for making Locked On Zags your first listen of the day. For your next listen, check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast. The biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big game recaps, and the take of the day available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get podcasts. All right, we are talking baseball here in the second segment. This first question comes from Jim on Facebook. A simple one. What do you think of our spot in the NCAA baseball tournament? Yeah, the Zags 
are not headed to Corvallis. This was the prediction that most people made after their performance in the WCC tournament. It didn't go the way that they hoped. They lost to San Diego and kind of crushed their dreams of being a of hosting a regional. It was the big goal for this year for the first time in program history to host a regional in Spokane, Washington. Unfortunately, that did not come together. Most believe that they would end up being the number two seed in the Oregon State region in Corvallis. Of course, that makes sense. Geographically, location-wise, they kind of like to try to keep these teams together as much as possible. But instead, the Zags are heading out to Virginia to play in the Virginia Tech region. A huge surprise, very, very unexpected. There were some quotes on a great article at KREM by Travis Green talking about the, the, the baseball players' reactions to seeing their name on the screen and going to Virginia Tech. Uh, Coach Metcalf thinks it's a reward. Uh, he acknowledged that Virginia Tech is a, is a lower seed, a lower-seeded team than both Stanford and, Cor- and Oregon State, which is where they could have conceivably gone. So, you know, it's, it's like getting the, the better two-seed, playing against the worst number one seed. Obviously, this is something that Gonzaga fans are familiar with with basketball, so it's, it's a reward for them. Obviously, having to travel across the country to play baseball is... A little bit more challenging, you know, their, their first game's not till Friday, so it's not like they're going to be, like, horribly jet-lagged or anything like that. I'm sure they'll get out there with enough time to, to calibrate and adjust. Uh, their first games are going to be against Columbia, number three-seeded Columbia out of the Ivy League. Very good program. Uh, they're a really good hitting team. Very good hitting team. Team batting average over 300, which is very insane. Team on-base percentage over 380, which is just nuclear, really, really good, but they struggle on the mound. They're kind of the antithesis of Gonzaga and what Gonzaga has been most of the season where they have dominated on the bump. Gabriel Hughes, Tristan Vreeling, William Kempner, Owen Wilde have been outstanding on the pitching mound, but we have seen some challenges with Gonzaga's hitters, uh, although it's worth noting that Gonzaga's hitting really beefed up in the WCC tournament, and I think that if they can carry that momentum into the regional, they have a very good chance of defeating Columbia. And frankly, Virginia Tech's not going to be easy, uh, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of people predicting Gonzaga to win that one, but in a double elimination tournament, you got a chance you have a chance to stay with it and potentially advance out of that region. We're going to talk about those bats here in a second as this next question comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, What is more surprising, the fact that the Zags bats showed up in a major way during the WCC baseball tournament or that the pitchers, who had been so strong all year, could not hold on to a four-run lead in the eighth inning of the WCC baseball title game? Uh, The bats being consistent is far more surprising. Uh, Any team can have a bat inning. And Gabriel Hughes and Tristan Vreeling and Owen Kempner and William... Owen Wilde and William Kempner, let's get that right, uh, them being great all year has nothing to do with the Zags bullpen imploding in the eighth inning. They're just, they're unrelated topics. Uh, it sucks that that happened. It's unfortunate that the Zags blew that lead and are not going to, were, did not win the WCC tournament because of that. But, you know, you move on, you flush it, you advance. They got themselves a favorable draw. They're feeling good about going out to Virginia. They've got Columbia. They got potentially Virginia Tech on the on deck after that. A couple of good squads, but teams that are definitely beatable for the Zags, especially because those bats wake, woke up. I'm pumped. I'm pumped that the bats woke up. They needed this. They, they haven't been a bad hitting team all year long, but they've been an inconsistent hitting team. And we talked a lot on this podcast about how One of the challenges they've had is not getting the sticks going early in games. They did a much better job of that in the WCC tournament, made some advancements there. If they continue to hit well, yeah, maybe the bullpen will still have a couple bad innings. That's just going to happen. That's baseball. That's part of what part of the game. But the bats being alive and well the way that they were in that tournament is a much bigger deal for Gonzaga going forward. 
Final question of the segment, another one from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, given how well San Diego played in the WCC baseball tournament, how impressive is it that a week before Gonzaga basically dominated San Diego on their home field? Is this a matter of a desperate San Diego team playing extremely well for one week, or is there a reason to be concerned about Gonzaga baseball going forward? No, I don't see any reason to be concerned about the Zags. It's really hard to beat. If you if you beat a team the way that they did in the in the final weekend of the regular season, it's just really hard to beat a team again. Gonzaga doesn't usually beat St. Mary's every time they play them on the basketball court, even if they beat them really badly the first game of the year. I don't go into that second game thinking, oh, they're probably just going to win again. It's hard to beat good teams multiple times in a row. And in baseball, you play a team three times in a row. It's just tough. It's tough to do. And San Diego, yeah, they were desperate because they thought they thought their chances of potentially securing a bid uh, were dwindling and they needed to win the WCC tournament to feel super secure about that. So yeah, that was a part of it. But we're also talking about a team that's just good. It's not like they were a bad team all year and then they all of a sudden got really good against Gonzaga. That's not what happened. San Diego was a good team all year. Gonzaga played really, really well against them in the final weekend of the regular season. And then San Diego responded, made some adjustments, were well coached came out and got the job done when they needed to in the WCC tournament. There's nothing about how this, how those games went that concerns me about Gonzaga going forward, especially after seeing the draw that they got for the, w, or for the NCAA tournament. All right, two segments down. We're going to answer even more listener-submitted questions. We got three more today on our Mailbag Tuesday, doing it a day late. Uh, we're going to answer those questions here after this. All right, segment three, still Andy Patton, still Locked On Zags, still answering listener-submitted questions for Mailbag Tuesday, as we're calling it for this week. The final three questions of the show come from Twitter user Jacob Quarter 2 He asked a few light-hearted questions this week as we prepare for what is going to be a very busy week with the announcements for Timmy Strother and Bolton coming. His first question, he says, what is your favorite memory of watching a Gonzaga game in the arena? So I have a lot of them. Obviously, I was a student at Gonzaga from 2009 to 2013. I was a Kennel Club board member my senior year, the 2012-2013 season, and I was the leader of the cheers for that season. So I had the little wristband on, and I was pointing at somebody on the other side and started coordinating cheers. It's part of the reason that my first podcast was named Score Zag Score, because I got made fun of by my friends for frequently using that cheer, probably more often than I should have. But frankly, it was one of the few cheers that was audible from the student section. So we like to use that one so that people could actually hear what the heck we were yelling Anyway, I'm going to pick a game from that year. I'm going to pick a game from that year that Gonzaga lost. Very few games in the kennel during my senior year that the Zags lost. This one was the game against Illinois, the non-conference game in 2012. Uh, That game was an absolute blast. It was one of the first big games in the kennel where I was in that role. So for me personally, it was very, very cool to be a part of of really kind of coordinating the sound that we heard in the kennel that day, how loud it was, how energetic it was. Gonzaga went on some runs. Illinois went on some runs. Brandon Paul was the point guard for Illinois that year. He dropped something like 35 in that game. We had there'd been a lot of banter with him before the game uh, online. There'd been some banter with him before the game, just students talking to him before the game, uh, and he was loving it. He reveled in the energy and being the guy that Gonzaga fans hated. He was waving at the crowd. He was pot 
talked to the crowd after the game. He posted about the crowd on Twitter after the game. Uh, and it sucked that Gonzaga lost that game. It was a really tough game, but I, I just I will never forget the energy and the feeling in that game that season. It was an absolute blast. I have a ton of other great memories. Uh, someday I'll maybe share a full story about uh, LMU guard Anthony Ireland. Uh, he was a player that I talked to before a couple of games. Took a picture with him after the game. Have continued to chat with him on social media up to now. This has been 10 years later. I talked to him very recently on social media, congratulating him on something. So he's a player that is has kind of been a part of my life for that amount of time because of interactions we had before the game uh, back in 2013. Next question, another one, again, from Jake McCorder, too. He says, who is the one Zag player or coach you would want to have a beer with and why? So it's funny because you ask this question because I always think about former players in the context or the lens of, of podcast guests, right? And having a beer with somebody versus having them on the podcast, not always different. I don't want my podcast to seem so different from just a normal conversation with a former player or coach, but they are different things. And so I kind of had to figure out how to wrap my brain around the answering this question because it is a little bit different. Uh, I think there there's tons of great options here, certainly. I think Adam Morrison is, is the name that continues to kind of float to the front of my brain uh, because I haven't had a lot of interactions with him. I've had a few small interactions with him, but he is had such a fascinating career, you know, the, the meteoric rise to superstardom uh, while at a small school at Gonzaga that was not nearly the level that they are now, certainly, uh, at least in terms of notoriety and fame. Uh, to be a Spokane kid, it goes to a local school to blow up the way that he did, to go into the NBA, to have the challenges that he had there, to still win some championships, to be around some all-time greats. Like, there's a lot of really interesting, dynamic conversation that could be had with a player like like Adam Morrison. So he kind of jumps to the front of the line. Uh, Nigel Williams Goss is another one. I would love to talk to him. He's a, he's a brilliant person, very intelligent, uh, extremely good basketball player, and just a, a great just a really good dude. His mom wrote an article a few years ago about the challenges of being uh, in a mixed interracial relationship. And it was very poignant and very, just a very kind of heartfelt article. And I think that Nigel has a lot of those kind of character traits. And I think just, he's a player that I would talk to less about basketball. And I think that that's kind of the context for this question, because if I have you on the podcast, I'm probably going to talk to you mostly about basketball. But if I'm just having a beer with you, I might talk to you about other stuff. And Williams Goss is a player that I think fits there. Gino Crandall is a player that I think fits there. Uh, after chatting with Sam on the podcast, he would be another option as well. Uh, Sam Dower, of course. Uh, and there's so many more. You know, Rob Sacre, obviously, would be a blast, I think. So Stephen Gray, I think, would be a blast. So there are tons of tons of really good options for this question here. And the final one of the show, again, from Jacob Quarter 2, he says, which Gonzaga jersey would you say is the best of all time and the worst? So I didn't dig fully into this. I will say that this is probably a project for later in the offseason, maybe August, September, when there's a bit of a dead period before the next season starts to do some more uniform stuff, whether we do rankings, whether we do have some guests on to discuss some uniforms. I'm not sure how it's going to shake out yet, but I'll give you some quick answers. Uh, I love the red alternates from the from the Morrison era, the 2004 to 2007 or whenever they, they had those red alternates. I think those are a blast, and I really wish Gonzaga would bring something like those back, whether it's an exact replica of those, whether it's a more modernized version of those red alternates. I think that would be super fun. I also know that Gonzaga's true colors as a university are blue and white, and so that's probably why they haven't used them all that much. But red has always been a part of of their uniforms, and I think having a red alternate would be really, really cool. I love the PK-80 jerseys as well. I think some people weren't as keen 
on those. I understand that. I thought they were really, really cool. I have a pair of the shorts that they wore for those PK80 jerseys back in 2017, uh, and they were always some of my favorites there. There's not a lot of jerseys that I really didn't like. Uh, the early 2000s blue jerseys were just kind of boring, and that's the ones that we see a lot of, like, when we see highlights of, like, Matt Santangelo or Dan Dickow or Corey Violet or those guys, like, Richie Fromm. That those are the jerseys they were wearing. They're fine. I don't think they're bad. I'm glad Gonzaga has moved past them and has upgraded a little bit, but I think those are just kind of a little bit boring. I also didn't really like the white and teal jerseys, the Nike N7s that they wore. Uh, I remember Josh Perkins, Silas Melson wearing them, so it was around 2017. I don't remember the exact game or games that they wore them. Uh, and I believe it was for a, a, a cause for a good reason, so I don't want to like crap on them for that. Uh, but I didn't particularly like the way that those jerseys looked. All right. That is going to do it for me today on a delayed Mailbag Monday episode. A big week, big week for the Zags coming up. We're going to have a ton of conversation about what the decisions for Timmy Strother and Bolton are, what they mean for Gonzaga. We'll talk about Baba Miller a little bit more, depending on how his visit goes. And of course, we got Gonzaga baseball coming up this week. So a ton of fun stuff. Keep your ears peeled for some great episodes of Locked on Zags available wherever you get your podcasts. Also available on YouTube as well. Check it out there if you haven't yet and hit that subscribe button. Finally, thank you for making Locked on Zags your first listen of the day. Make sure to go check out the Locked on NBA Big Board. Host Raphael Barlow from NBA Draft Junkies and author of the NBA Big Board newsletter is joined by Richard Stamen, Sam Ferris, and Leif Thulin, giving fans an in-depth look into the NBA draft, mock draft, player rankings, and of course, big boards. It's free and available wherever you get podcasts. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags.